this is the typical intuitive way that people eat. Stefan Guinet is a neuroscientist and science writer known for his expertise in obesity and nutrition, particularly focusing on the brain's role in food intake. There's not a very tight relationship between the number of calories you're eating and that satiety signal. He is the author of a great book called The Hungry Brain, where he explores how factors like diet, stress, and sleep affect eating behavior and obesity. So that satiety signal is the signal that determines when you stop eating and therefore determines your meal size. Welcome to the HAVA podcast. Guinea advocates for evidence-based nutrition, challenging popular diet trends when they go against the science. He's one of the most respected thought leaders in the field and someone I've had the pleasure of talking to and learning from over the years. Today, we talk about how to eat for health and fitness, common mistakes and flawed science, satiety, of course, and also what does he eat in a day? Welcome, Stefan, to the show. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Andreas. So I thought maybe we could uh, start with you just sharing uh, some things about your background. Like, how did you end up here? You're quite an authority now on, on diet and lifestyle and obesity. Uh, how did this whole thing get started for you? Yeah, so my uh, background in research is in neuroscience. Originally, I studied neurodegenerative disease and uh, decided when I moved to a postdoc to take it to obesity research. And the reason is that I have a personal interest in fitness and health, and I also think that obesity is one of the most impactful health conditions of our time. And furthermore, it has a lot to do with neuroscience. And so that's why I um, thought that bringing together these interests, the professional interest in neuroscience and my personal interest in fitness and health um, a great way to do that was to go into obesity research. And so really what I was working on at the University of Washington with Mike Schwartz was the way that the brain signaling that regulates our body fatness changes as we develop obesity. And I think that's a really important topic since the brain is the organ that generates eating behavior, right? And it's the organ that regulates our body fatness. So understanding how those changes occur um, is really important. And in the course of that work, I felt like I was learning some things that were very important to understanding obesity and very important and not really reaching the public in any intelligible way. And that stimulated me to do science communication around that. And at this point, I'm not doing research anymore. I'm doing science communication in this area. And basically, I want to understand why people gain more fat today than they did in the time of our ancestors. And I think understanding the way the brain operates is, is, a, key, um, is, a, is a key thing that you need to understand if you want to understand that. How the brain operates, how it interacts with genetics, how it interacts with the modern environment and how that leads us to overconsume and gain fat. And so all of that um, exploration led to my book, The Hungry Brain, and basically here I am. <laughs> ah, yeah, I mean, it's a great book. Yeah, I think it came out in 2017 or something. So a few years back. 
Um, what uh, what would you say is the main message of the book, and uh, and what, if anything, have you changed your mind on since then? Yeah. So the thesis of the book is that we have these non-conscious brain processes that evolved in a specific context, the context of our distant ancestors, and those things were good for our ancestors, these brain processes that uh, drive us to seek calories, drive us to seek specific types of calories, because those were the things that helped us survive in an ancestral environment. But in today's environment, they're just receiving the wrong signals from the environment, receiving the wrong signals from our physiology. And all of that kind of comes together to drive us to overconsume in the modern environment. So it's trying to help people understand that this is just our brain doing what it was designed to do. Like obesity is the brain doing what it was designed to do in this type of a situation. It's just that this type of a situation didn't exist 10,000 years ago or a thousand years ago or even 200 years ago. Um, so that's, that's yeah. the main thesis of the book. Yeah. So, um, I listened to you on another podcast talking about, uh, there's been quite a, a profound increase in obesity around the world. Uh, I think many, many people are aware of that has increased quite a bit in the last few decades since the nineties or eighties, but this goes back even longer perhaps. And, uh, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, if we, the, so the evidence gets more and more sparse, the further we go back. So the evidence that we have, that's really good in the United States goes back to the 1960s. And what we can see is in the sixties, there was the obesity rate was something like a third of what it is today. And severe obesity was even less. It was like less than 10% of, of what it is today. But if we go even further back, again, the data are not quite as um, precise as the more recent data, but we can go back to 1900, 1890, and we have these data from um, U.S. Civil War veterans. So these are basically middle-aged white men. And what those data suggest is that less than one in 20 of those people had obesity. So these, again, these are middle-aged white men. If you look at the same demographic today, what you're going to see is that nearly half of that demographic has obesity in the United States. And so, so 10 times more. Huh? Yeah. In the and years. at least, yeah, I think it might even be more than that. If you, if you crunch the numbers, I don't remember the specific figures off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, basically obesity was uncommon and now it is in the United States, essentially the lifetime risk of obesity that the risk that you will have it at some point in your life, I think is over half now. So more than half of people will not just develop overweight, but I will actually have what we would classify as, as obesity. Um, and then if we go back even further, you know, we don't have really reliable records, but we can say, what do hunter gatherers look like today? hunter-gatherers that exist today or that have been characterized historically? What do subsistence farmers look like that exist today? And generally what we see is that people who are living this deep ancestral human life, um, lifestyle 
rarely have obesity. And I, I can actually say that I'm, I'm kind of interested in hunter gatherers. I'm not an anthropologist, but I like to read uh, hunter gatherer ethnographies and papers on them. I have never a single time come across a description of a hunter gatherer that had obesity that was living a traditional hunter gatherer lifestyle. Now, when they, when they transition to a modern lifestyle, like, or I, I shouldn't say modern lifestyle, because often it's them going into like, you know, onto reservations and things where they're, they're living a, a poor kind of uh, low quality lifestyle, but they will often rapidly develop obesity. So it's not that they're genetically resistant. It's clearly the environment that they're in. So something caused this to increase by 10 times, 20 times, 30 times. Um, I wonder what's your take on what does this mean? Because there's a lot of discussion today uh, about maybe it's not a problem. Maybe we should just let people with obesity uh, be. <laughs> we shouldn't bug them about this because maybe it's got no connection to health. Maybe it's even healthy to be overweight or you can be healthy at any weight. It doesn't necessarily uh, have an impact is what you know, a lot of people say. What's your take on that? Well, I think it's important to uh, respect people regardless of their body shape. And so I don't think it's a, a matter of, you know, applying any kind of moral judgment to them. Um, and I think, you know, I, I do in an ideal world, I would want everyone to be, you know, comfortable with their body and love their body, regardless of, of what it looks like. That said, I think we do need to acknowledge that there are some limitations and risks to the obese state. And, you know, I'll talk about the limitations first, because we often focus on the health stuff, but there are physical limitations that that type of a body imposes on someone. And as an adult, you know, you might have a limited ability for certain types of physical activities that other people would be able to do. It might um, increase the risk of arthritis in your joints that would further limit your ability to um, do vigorous activities. And I think especially in kids, this is, this is where I think about it the most. I mean, think about kids playing on a playground, like playing on monkey bars and climbing up, you know, ladders and, and running around playing baseball and stuff. Like these are just normal, like these are human activities, right? These are important human activities and they are limited by having a very heavy body, right? So to me, there's, there's this kind of like, functional aspect of it is like it's holding back to some degree just kind of human flourishing in in individuals and then there's also the the health aspects of it with which um are sometimes denied as you said but i think the evidence overall supports that it is a health risk if you you know we we you can look at animal models any kind of animal model if you increase their weight, you're going to increase their risk of metabolic problems. That's like very clear. And in humans, we know that um, people who lose weight have a greatly reduced risk of developing type 2 diabetes. We have multiple massive randomized controlled trials of very high quality that demonstrate 
that you can get major reductions in the risk of developing type 2 diabetes with weight loss in people who are overweight or have obesity. And um, yeah, and then there's there's more I could say about the the observational correlations. There there's kind of some technical points around. Um, you know, there are these studies that find that actually it seems to be best to to be overweight or slightly have you know mild obesity in terms of mortality risk. I think that those studies are very heavily confounded, and I think that conclusion is not supported. Um, but I'll just leave that there unless you want to get into the details. We can go uh, deeper into that uh, uh, that thing a little bit later, perhaps. I think it would be interesting to hear a little bit more about uh, um, the message that you have about how obesity is regulated and, of course, uh, how that sort of translates to, you know, someone listening, how could you change the way you live to reduce the risk of obesity, uh, improve your health, fitness, those kind of things. Like how, how does the brain regulate obesity and connected to that sort of what can, what can people do in the environment we're in today to make this regulation work better? Yeah. So I, I like to break it down in terms of brain systems. So there are brain systems that regulate your hunger and satiety. There are brain systems that regulate, that actually directly regulate your body, excuse me, your body fatness, the amount of fat on your body. Um, there are brain systems that regulate your attraction to food, your, your kind of craving level visceral attraction to food, how seductive a food seems to you. And so these are, these are kind of like, you know, they're not independent, but they're kind of, you know, you could think of them as kind of modular. Each one is performing its own function and then they come together to uh, determine your eating behavior and body fatness. And so we can target these in different ways and The two big ones that I typically come back to on podcasts, if I, you know, have a limited amount of time and I want to be as impactful as possible, the two big ones that I usually come back to are one, controlling your food environment so that you're not pushing signals to these reward regions of your brain that are going to stimulate your cravings and stimulate your drive to eat independently of hunger. And then the second one is satiety how can you design the food that you're eating such that you're maximizing the amount of satisfaction that you're getting per number of calories that you're consuming. And so those are the two big ones that I tend to focus on in, in podcast settings. I mean, that's super interesting. Uh, both of those, uh, of course, the satiety per calorie approach is something we're quite interested in. Uh, with, you know, I am and the team is and uh, full disclosure, we're building a product to, make that easier to do um but yeah uh, could you give some pointers on how to do those two things in in real life um for people yeah absolutely so i'll start with the food environment there are really um this can be broken down into into three pieces the main one is controlling sensory cues controlling food cues so The way that the um, 
you could call it the reward system. You could call it the craving system. The thing that kind of gives us that visceral drive to go for something really tempting. Um, the way that gets triggered is by sensory cues that remind your brain of a desirable food. And so you see the food, you smell the food. Those are the, those are the two main ones. You would see it, you would smell it. So if you have um, cues in your environment for foods that are tempting to you, so like let's say there's cookies on the counter, that's going to create a scenario when you see those cookies or when you smell them. Let's say you smell them coming out of the oven. I think that's a good example. That's immediately your brain's going to recognize that smell or that appearance and it's going to start triggering dopamine release. And, and you're going to experience a craving at least if that's a preferred food for you, you're going to experience a craving. And at that point, if you don't want to eat the food, you're going to be in a struggle situation, right? And in many cases, realistically, people are going to eat the food. It's hard to struggle against that. They're just going to do it. And so don't put yourself in that situation is, is basically the advice. Don't have the visual cues. Don't have food in your personal space at a time when you're not intending to eat food. And that includes actual food in your space. It includes food advertising. So for example, to the extent that you can, can you control the amount of food that you're seeing in, in media, on your computer, on your TV, billboards, etc. Um, and, you know, smells or sights that you might see walking around let's say you're walking home from work or something can you walk somewhere that's not right past that bakery that has those smells that really make you want the pastry or the bread or whatever it is um so those are just some examples of controlling sensory cues that trigger the drive to consume that's not necessarily linked to hunger and this is an important point too like you could you maybe you wouldn't have been hungry at all when you're walking past the bakery you might not be hungry at all but once you smell that smell you might want to eat something and you might start feeling hungry even though you don't need energy at that time at all that's just your brain saying that's a desirable food let's get it so so that's one thing the second thing i'll say is creating effort barriers to consuming foods in your environment at times when you don't want to be consuming foods. So like, for example, two great examples that I use are if you have foods out that are, you know, foods that you could grab and eat, make sure there's something that you, you have to work for. So like oranges that you would have to peel to eat or nuts that are in shell that you would have to crack to eat. So those are not things that you're just going to walk by and grab a handful of. You're probably only going to go through that effort if it's if you're actually hungry. And so you're not just going to casually because you're bored grab a handful or whatever. So and then the third thing is how tempting it is. So this, you know, like this is the difference between having cookies and unsalted in-shell nuts on the counter, right? Like the cookies are a much stronger stimulus much more motivating than the unsalted in shell nuts and so <clears throat> that's another lever that you can tweak so that's the that's the food environment piece again the three pieces were um 
controlling sensory cues, limiting sensory cues, um, creating effort barriers to eating at times when you're not intending to eat and not having the foods that are available be too tempting. And then the satiety piece is totally different. So that's saying when you do eat something, what's the composition of what you're eating? So the way that works is that as you eat food, you're, you have sensors all along your digestive tract that report to your brain what the chemical and physical composition is of what you've eaten. And in your brainstem, your brainstem is receiving this information and integrating it. It's actually really complex what's happening in there. There's tons of information coming up from the vagus nerve from your guts. And it's integrating all that and building up to a decision that says, let's stop eating. So if you're at a meal, each bite, the information goes up and you're building up, you're building up, you're building up that signal until finally your brainstem says, okay, we had enough, we can stop eating. And so it shuts off your motivation to consume further food. And that's the point at which you feel full, you, you just lose desire to eat, stuff doesn't taste as good anymore, and you do something else. So, and I think it's really important to point out that this is the typical intuitive way that people eat. They eat when they feel motivated to eat, usually when that, you know, that involves some hunger, and then they stop when they feel full, right? So that satiety signal is the signal that determines when you stop eating and therefore determines your meal size. And I think that's really, really important because it makes it a really important lever, right? That we can manipulate to impact meal size. And importantly, the relationship between, there's not a very tight relationship between the number of calories you're eating and that satiety signal. So that's, it, that's interesting, right? Because if, if it was, then it wouldn't matter. Then you can eat exactly. anything. So it's not like your it's not like your brainstem is adding up the calories one by one until you get to the number it's looking for. But all the apps that's that's what they're doing, right? They're tracking <laughs> the calories. Yeah, that's but right. You're, you're and saying that's not how the brain works. No, it is definitely not how the brain works. No, the brain does not have an energy balance spreadsheet. It's trying to to balance. Uh, well, you know what it it in a sense it does, but it's not the kind of the same way that we approach it. It's more like it will regulate your body fatness as a proxy for long-term energy balance. But on a day-to-day -day level, it's not, it's not working like a, a spreadsheet trying to make energy balance. So it's just um, very interesting because that's, that's what I got taught in, in medical school. And that's what everybody gets kind of told. This is all about calories in calories out, eat less calories, run more and things will be all right. But that's well, uh, you, you're saying that's a pretty artificial way to approach it. Yes, I think that's a great way to put it. It's an artificial way to approach it. Correct. Yeah. So you're basically so that's not the way that we intuitively interact with food, right? We interact with food by eating when we feel like eating and stopping when we no longer have desire to eat, right? Not by counting calories. And so if we are counting calories, we're kind of imposing a top-down regulation on the system. We're saying, I'm going to use my conscious 
rational quantitative brain to impose something on these uh, instinctive, intuitive regulatory circuits in the brain. And it can be done. You know, there are people who do it. And if, you know, if you can stick with it, then it, it works. It's not like theoretically unsound, right? Like if you, if you cut back your calories, you will lose fat. So it's not like wrong in theory. I think it's just difficult for people to sustain because what you're doing is you're setting up a conflict, an internal conflict between brain systems. You're setting up a conflict between these intuitive, instinctive regulatory circuits and your conscious rational brain. And these intuitive regulatory circuits are not designed to be overridden. And it's very difficult to do so in the long run. And so not very enjoyable. Huh? It's not enjoyable. Absolutely. And, and I think I hope that people really like think about this concept of internal conflict, because I think I think this will resonate with people like how much of a struggle it is to try to count calories and lose weight and feel like you're constantly grappling with your urges to eat more. That's an internal conflict and it's uncomfortable. So, and I think for most people in the long run, it's unbearable. And so you don't get very good outcomes. So, yeah. So I tend to favor an approach where we're directly addressing these um, intuitive, instinctive, non-conscious regulatory systems. We're trying to give those systems the inputs that work best for them to kind of recruit them to our, our positive, conscious, rational goals instead of creating an internal conflict. That's, that's my thinking. And I tend to think that that's going to produce more sustainable I mean, um, it sounds uh, super nice. Uh, no conflict, no internal conflict in the brain, just your <clears throat> um, abstract goals and your intuitive uh, urges and sort of uh, desires are <laughs> pointing in the same direction. That's pretty nice. But how do you achieve that? Yeah. So, you know, we've, we've been talking about these strategies. One is controlling your food environment and um, the, you know, if you're not feeding those sensory cues into your system, you're not going to be generating those, you're not going to be triggering those systems, those instinctive systems to, to be driving you to eat. And then there's the satiety piece, which is also important. Um, and there again, by choosing the types of foods that you're consuming, you're giving signals to these regulatory circuits, particularly the satiety circuit in the hypothalamus. And you're, you're giving that system the signal it needs to be satisfied with fewer calories. And so it feels that circuit feels like it's getting what it needs. And so it's not creating a struggle for you. And so by eating different types of foods, foods with different physical and chemical properties than what the typical person eats, you can still reach that point of satiety and satisfaction at a meal, but having eaten many fewer calories than the typical person would have eaten with, with typical foods. So I don't know, uh, 
if you want me to get into specifics yeah, about that. Yeah, sure. Or... I mean, uh, for me, this is uh, uh, so, uh, an area of great interest. And uh, personally, I think that this, uh, I mean, I agree with pretty much everything you're saying and that, uh, you know, if people want to be able to eat less to achieve some goal, health goal, fitness goals, w uh, whatever it may be, then counting calories, like you said, it sets up this internal conflict. It It's uh, uncomfortable, potentially unbearable, and much better than to eat foods that cause you to want to eat the right amount, and then there is no internal conflict. But the next question, of course, becomes, wow, what kind of food is that? And how do I figure that out? Yeah, so there are... Um... Yeah, so I'll just say, first of all, that the most informative study that I've seen on this is the study published in 1995 by Susanna Holt and colleagues from Jenny Brand Miller's group. I know you are very familiar with the study, um, but what they did was they fed people, um, was it 38 common foods? I think it was 38, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, and they, they fed them fixed calorie portions of 38 common foods. And then they just asked them at 15 minute intervals for two hours, basically, how full do you feel? They asked them in a quantitative way, how full do you feel? How, how much would you want to eat something right now? And just trying to measure how much did each of these foods create satiety or fullness. And then after that, they did some math to figure out what properties of these foods correlated with how full they made people feel. And what they found was, well, first of all, in terms of the categories, um, I think, you know, some of this is not very shocking. Some of it's pretty intuitive, like the foods that most people would consider junk foods score very low on satiety. So things like candy, bakery goods, I think bakery goods were the worst croissants. I think were, Croissant, yeah. yeah, the absolute <laughs> worst. The <laughs> yeah. So, you know, these calorie dense, highly palatable, highly processed and refined foods tended to score really, really poorly. Um, and then the foods that scored the best were lower calorie density, less processed foods. So things like uh, fresh meats and oatmeal and eggs and fresh fruit and those types of those types of foods. So foods that most people would say are less processed, more healthy types of foods. And, um, and also, you know, foods that are more similar to what our ancestors would have more commonly eaten. And then they said, okay, well, what properties of these foods predict whether something's going to be high satiety or low satiety? And they identified some, some important correlates. So calorie density is an important one. So number of calories per gram of food, or you can think about it as calories per volume. So like same number of calories, but more taking up more space in your stomach. Those types of things provide more satiety per calorie. And I think it's really important to specify we're talking about per calorie here because you can eat, you know, <laughs> if you eat, a bunch of pizza and french fries and ice cream you're going to probably feel super full but you also consumed 
an extreme number of calories. And so it's really the ratio between the satiety and the calories that we're concerned with. Yeah. So for example, if you eat uh, pizza and uh, soda and ice cream, then maybe you're full after 1500 or 2000 calories. But if you eat uh, lean meats and vegetables and potatoes or something, then how many calories would you guess? Like how much? Oh, I like 10% less, 50% less. Oh, I think it could be a lot, much less. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to give like a specific quantitative figure or let me rephrase that. I wouldn't want to confidently give you a specific figure because I don't have a specific what's number, but best, what's your best educated? Guess? Oh, I mean, I think you could reduce calorie intake easily by a third maybe more. I mean, relative to the pizza and, and ice cream, easily by a third. Yeah. Maybe 50% even wouldn't surprise me. At least if I'm talking about myself, I know that's true. <laughs> I'll be too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and that's a pretty massive difference. And, and it's also the case that a lot of people, <clears throat> a lot of the food that is available in the, in the modern food environment has these properties, right? That drive pretty extreme overconsumption. You might even argue that uh, the food industry is heavily incentivized to produce exactly those foods because the more people eat, the more they buy. What would you say about that? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't think the food industry is trying to make people have obesity, but there are incentives, certainly. And the incentives, yeah, and the incentives do push toward obesity. I have very little doubt about that. I think part of the problem is that there's this kind of like cluster of qualities that process that, um, you know, modern popular processed foods revolve around and they, um, the ones that create that reward value that makes us motivated to buy them are correlated with the ones that make us overeat. So like foods that are really high in calorie density, for example, that's one of the things that the brain says, Oh, I like calorie density. I would, I would like to eat this pizza instead of this, uh, you know, piece of lean meat and baked potato, um, that sort of thing. So, yeah. So um, getting back to the properties that matter, there's calorie density. That was a very important one. There is um, protein. That was important. There is fiber content. So let me actually explain that a little bit more. So more protein, higher percentage of protein in the food led to greater satiety per calorie. Fiber, higher percentage of fiber led to greater satiety per calorie. And then there was palatability, which is how delicious food tastes. So the more delicious it was, the lower the satiety per calorie. So essentially, the way I think about this is your, your brain is, you know, palatability is a signal that your brain intuitively thinks a food is highly valuable. So your brain is saying, this is a really great food. And so it just kind of takes the brakes off and says, all right, this is a really great food. Let's eat some more of this. But th that's an interesting thing. I would love to hear your point of view on this because um, it seems more complicated. 
um, to me at least, that it's not just about how delicious the food is. I mean, if you go to a Michelin star restaurant, the food might be, at least to some people who are who like that sort of thing, I mean, ultra delicious, but it still might be very, very small servings and you may be quite happy when you leave. While if you go to a, like a, a, say McDonald's or something, I mean, for some people it's not, it's not the most amazing culinary experience, but in a way you get uh, stimulated to eat a ton of calories. So how do you explain that? Yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of, yeah, I think it is complicated. So one of the things is that palatability or deliciousness per se may not actually be the most important thing. It might just be the, a correlate of the most important thing, which is the motivation, the motivational drive to consume. So this concept of reward, which is this uh, brain process, encompasses both pleasure and motivation. And those are not exactly the same. The pleasure is the palatability. The motivation is, is the motivation. Um, and the motivation is the thing that gets you to eat, but it's harder to measure than the pleasure. Like you can ask people, how much do you like this? But it's harder to get at that motivational piece. It's not as intuitive. Would you agree that it's more kind of the dopamine, the sort of addictiveness of something that sort of drive us to overdo it more than the sort of uh, sensory pleasure per se. Yes. Um, but I don't want to say that the sensory pleasure is not involved at all. Um, and this is always a difficult message. Nobody wants to hear this. <laughs> oh, no, no, boring, but, boring uh, plain food is not very sexy. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally, I am not as focused on the pleasure aspect as the motivation aspect. I think the motivation aspect is more important, but I mean, if you served me two identical dishes, let's say, you know, a, a meat and vegetable stew and one of them is not spiced with anything, let's say it has no salt or little salt and no herbs or garlic or anything. And the other one is is well spiced with lots of herbs and garlic and salt. Am I going to eat more of the one that's well spiced? I probably would, right? Um, so <clears throat> I don't think it is irrelevant. I don't necessarily think it's the most important aspect of reward to focus on. I think the motivation aspect is probably bigger. Yeah. Mm. I would love to get back to these factors because, of course, we, I mean, this is what we, uh, are working on at Hava trying to make something useful with this. Like, um, from your understanding, how would you sort of weigh these factors? How would you combine them? Like, which one is the most important? How do they interact? Uh, I mean, it's a complex, <laughs> very complex question, but uh, how would you reply to that? Yeah, it is a very complex question. And, and I want to start off just with a note of humility that I don't think we have perfect answers to this. Like, in an ideal world, we could do a massive experiment with many variables that are being combined in different, you know, combinations to figure out exactly what the thing is that we need to target in what proportion and do it over the long term so we can see like 
how is it impacting people's body fatness over six months, a year, et cetera. We don't have that. So we have, you know, pieces that we're trying to put together. So, so, you know, I'm doing my best here, but I just want to make sure people understand that this is not the like definitive, you know, hundred percent certainty answer to this question. Um, so I think probably the best supported variable here in terms of the overall literature, including longer term weight loss is protein. Um, so there are a number of studies suggesting that higher protein diets can not only increase satiety in the short run, but can increase weight loss in, in the long run. And they seem to help diets be more sustainable for people. They help maintain muscle mass with weight loss. And um, they seem to make it easier for people. Like that satiety really seems to help like continue in the long run that you get from that higher protein intake. Um, so I would say that is probably the, the most solid piece. I think uh, energy density is pretty important too. I think, I do think that, yeah, there's enough evidence to say that that effect does probably carry over into the long run as well, at least to some extent. And then um, there's, I think the kind of like reward value palatability thing is pretty important too. Um, but we don't have as much hard evidence on that in terms of like long run impact on body fatness. But um, I think there's a pretty good case to be made for it nevertheless, just because, I mean, I think people understand what happens when they're around certain problem foods, most people would understand like there are some foods that trigger your eating drive excessively and it's hard to control yourself around. And if you're not eating those foods, you're probably going to have an easier time sticking to your diet goals, right? So um, exactly how, you know, big of a piece that is quantitatively in the bigger picture, I don't know, but I think it's certainly, I do think it's important. I hope that answers and your the question. Fiber you never <laughs> even mentioned. So you, I, I take it that you feel it's slightly lower on the scale. Yes, uh, it, that's not to say that I don't think it's important, but I don't know quite what to make of it. I mean, I don't think that fiber is the same kind of standalone weight loss thing that high protein is, or that lower calorie density is like. You can put people on high protein diets and they'll lose weight. You can put people on low calorie density diets and they'll lose weight, but you can't just give someone Metamucil and make them lose a bunch of weight. Like maybe they would lose a little bit, maybe, but we're talking about smaller effect sizes. So I think where fiber you know, maybe you could think about it as a contributing factor to energy density, or maybe you could think about it as something that is um, just kind of like it's standing on its own, but maybe is just a smaller contributor than some of these other factors. Um, I would say those would be reasonable interpretations. That's just interesting to hear. Um, I mean, I... <clears throat> Talk a lot to Dr. Ted Naiman. He's also really into this and working with us 
And uh, I mean, I, I think you're extremely aligned. Like, uh, I guess you've, you've read the same read the same science and came to very, very, very similar conclusions. It's interesting. Um, I mentioned this to you before. I think uh, your Hungry Brain book is the first time I read the term satiety buccalary. Um, but oh, wow. you were not first, right? There was something else, oh. somebody else before. Where did you pick that up, that idea? Well, do you mean that specific term or the concept? Yes. Well, I mean specifically the, the term, actually. I don't know. I I don't know whether I came up with that or um, or I got that from a paper, but I think it's a pretty obvious way to phrase it. So I'm I'm not I'm not sure I'm going to take credit for it. <laughs> yeah, but that's cool that you came across it in my book first. Yeah, uh, I mean it's possible it it was around before, but you you got the idea. Where did you get the idea from? I think I got it from Susanna Holt's paper, that 1995 paper that mm. we talked about. That paper made a huge impression on me and still is very important to this day. Oh, it's very, very talked about with the satiety index. Of course, then you have the problem. You only have 38 foods and you only have a two-hour window. Uh, you could argue perhaps that in a longer time frame, maybe some other factors would be more interest, uh, more, mm -hmm. more impactful. Maybe energy density, uh, density and hedonic uh, factors or hyperpalatability is more of an impact in the short term. And maybe protein mm -hmm. has a more stronger impact in the long term. If you look at other studies, it seems plausible. What do you think about that? I think those are great points. And I think the study had several major limitations. So, you know, as, as informative as I think it is, because there's no other study like it currently, I would love to see that replicated with higher methodological quality, so better methods um, and more foods and maybe try things in a more naturalistic setting. Because, you know, just to give you an example, so the highest, as you know, the highest satiety per calorie food in that study was Potato. potatoes. Yeah. And they just like put a plain potato on people's plates but that's not really how people eat potatoes, right? Like, I mean, okay, sometimes I eat potatoes like that, but <laughs> but usually I'd be mixing you're pretty, it. You're, you're a unique guy. Yeah, I mean, it like usually I would have some kind of sauce or something on it. I mean, I don't like put butter or cheese on it, but if I make a dish, I'll usually try to have enough sauce in the dish so that I can kind of, mix it with the potato so i'm usually not just like straight up eating plain potato with nothing and i think although i do sometimes so i think that's um like is that really representative of how people consume potatoes or like bread like how many people just eat bread plain with nothing else it's not very common right normally you would eat it you know in a sandwich or with a meal or you would put something on it, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of people would put butter and jam on it. So like, you know, that's, that's one critique. Another one, we could talk about the methods. The methods were definitely not optimal in a few regards. Um, the duration was uh, an issue that you mentioned, you know, it'd be better for, for us to have longer, like, could we have four hours? 
could we do a different version of the experiment where we have days or weeks? Um, so yeah, I would love to see this experiment get replicated yeah, yeah, um, in too. a different way. But this is, you know, what Still what very very interesting. I agree. Yeah, it's what we have, and it's and I think it's really informative. Um, but I totally agree with the limitations that you highlighted, and I think there are others as well where I would love to see this research extended. Uh, so something I would love to hear your point of view on, and I'm, I'm, you know, clearly I'm not looking for any endorsement or anything. I'm actually more looking for your critique and uh, um, ideas for how to do this in a better way. But uh, uh, what I think is that you have all these factors that you mentioned that influence the tight per calorie. It seems like a very, very impactful uh, concept, but it becomes very abstract and very difficult for normal people, even you know, abnormal people like me, it's, it's, it's difficult to, I mean, I don't know the energy density of every food I eat, I don't know the protein percentage, and I don't know how they interact. And like you point out, there is no perfect data. But it seems like with modern technology, we can at least approximate and, and sort of build an algorithm that combines these core factors and tries to predict on a scale how high or low satiety per calorie uh, a specific food or dish or meal or you know diet has and then try to guide people to higher satiety per calorie foods based on our best sort of interpretation of the existing data what's your take on that approach yeah i think it makes a lot of sense um and i just want to give people a little bit of context um you know, I have no conflict of interest here, uh, financial or otherwise, with Hava or anything else that Andreas is doing. I've met with Andreas a few times about this, and he's sought my feedback and mostly, you know, interested in critical feedback. How do we make this better? Um, no, I just think it's a good idea. And I think um, it's a very logical approach on a couple of different levels. One of them is that. I think that um, satiety is important. As we talked about, I think it's a major determinant of calorie intake. It's not the only determinant, but I do think it's a major lever. And furthermore, I don't think you necessarily do have to address every determinant to to have an impact. So this is a this is kind of a uh, an extreme example, but I mean, if you look at how the GLP one receptor agonist drugs work that like semaglutide, terzepatide, uh, Munjaro, uh, Zetbound, they are acting on satiety circuits. That's basically what they do. They act on satiety circuits in the brainstem and just ramp them up to, you know, crazy levels. And that's, you get a bigger effect that you're, than you're going to get with food. So I don't want to not presenting this as a perfect analogy with satiety, but what the point of me saying that is that it's not it, you're, you're taking one thing and you're cranking it up to the max. And if you do that, you can get um, you can get substantial effects. And so that's all to say that I don't know that you necessarily have to address all of the drivers of overconsumption to get an impact. So I think satiety as a concept is important. I also think that it's very important to, when you're trying to have a public impact, to have a simple 
message and simple, compelling delivery. And having one concept you're focusing on, satiety, and having a tool that boils that down to a single number, I think is an effective way to do that. So um, folks that are familiar with what Andreas is doing will know that you put um, foods into the tool and then it tells you the satiety value in a single number. So for either an individual item or a meal, you can say, what is the satiety level that this, what is the satiety per calorie that this is going to going to provide. And um, yeah, I think it's an important concept. And I think it's also a clear communication. Well, I appreciate that. Um, what do you think the benefits of a system like this could be for people if they were to, you know, understand it, use it to grade the satiety of what they eat, and perhaps, uh, perhaps then eat a little bit more of of higher satiety foods, a little bit less of lower satiety foods, for example, or or otherwise be guided by it? What could be the benefit? Yeah, I mean, it's um, basically the, you know, the path to impact is improving people's understanding and knowledge and then helping them eat less and lose fat and be healthier and, um, or, or just not gain fat. I think that's also a really important um, goal for many people. And yeah, so, I mean, I think, as you said, most of us don't have perfect knowledge about the foods that we're eating. We may not realize what the satiety per calorie is of what we're eating. We can talk about this later, but, you know, for me, one of the things that drives my satiety per calorie down a lot is nuts. And I think, you know, that's probably like the number one thing that drives it down. Uh, so did, uh, you, you sent us a day of eating and, uh, we ranked it in the, in the system and yeah, you're right. Uh, nuts is probably uh, one of the things that drives it down, which is uh, perhaps interesting because I bet a lot of people who are listening may be eating a lot of nuts. Yeah. And they might not realize maybe, that. Maybe believe that it's, uh, it's good. Uh, it's low carb. It's natural. Yeah. It's a healthy unprocessed food. Right. And it is all of those things, but it may not be the best from a weight loss perspective. Why not? High, do you, do um, you think, why don't, why don't you think it? Higher calorie density, um, would be the main thing. Yeah. They're also, they can also be pretty palatable if they're roasted and salted, but probably the main thing is the calorie density. Um, when, when, when looking at the uh, satiety per calorie and, and using these factors, protein, um, energy density, fiber, uh, and the sort of hedonic factor, uh, one thing that doesn't really purely play into it uh, is carbohydrates versus fat, sort of low carb versus low fat. Um, so that's the truth with with uh, some adjustment. Of course, a low carb diet tends to be higher satiety often because you eat more protein, less uh, hyperpalatable processed foods, etc. So, on average, a low carb diet, sure, you increase your satiety, and and obviously it, it works for a lot of people. But you can get perhaps similar results with a low-fat plant-based diet, for example, where you uh, also, you remove the added fats and you remove the ultra-processed foods and now you 
have pretty good outcomes too. And there are even studies showing sort of similar outcomes from those two approaches. So what's your take on this? Is this low carb versus low fat debate, is it helpful? Is it, uh, is there a, a clear winner there? Uh, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the debate is very helpful. The debate itself is very helpful of like, which is the ultimate, you know, diet. Um, because I don't think there is one ultimate diet. I think there can be, you know, for individuals, there can be diets that work better or for worse, but I don't think there's like one diet that everyone should eat. Um, and that will be optimal for everyone. So, yeah, I, and you know, this is a drum that I've beat a lot. Um, which is that if your model of how eating behavior and body fatness works, can't account for the effectiveness of both low carb and low fat diets, then it's not correct. Something's wrong or incomplete about the model if it can't account for both of those extremes. And so I think to me, the best model is one that suggests that really the most fattening place is in the middle, the place where you have lots of carbs and lots of fats, you're not restricting anything. And if you go off in either direction, low carb or low fat, you're going to get, you're going to get weight loss. We see this in animal models. We see this in human randomized controlled trials. Um, I will say, you know, I don't want to make the claim that they're like, identical and there's no difference in weight loss. I think if you, depending on how you want to interpret the literature, you might say that in the average person, there is, you're going to get somewhat more weight loss with the low carb diet, depending on how you, you interpret. I mean, I, I agree. Do you think some of that is because they lose uh, 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 glycogen and water fluid in the first few days, they lose a couple of pounds so they will always have like an advantage of a couple of pounds or something over any competitors in a way, in a way. Yeah, that's definitely the case. So, I mean, the biggest differences you see are early on in the diet. So like at the three month point or something, that's where you're going to see really big differences where low carb diet has the biggest advantage. Um, when you go out to six months, the difference usually shrinks. You go out to a year, the difference has further shrunk and may or may not be uh detectable anymore so um yeah it really depends on what time point and i think that earlier time points are more influenced by that body water loss so that could be a, a potential explanation um but the other thing i want to say and i want to acknowledge this that i think i do think that low carb diets tend to have an edge in terms of um in terms of metabolic health for people who have insulin resistance related disorders. So, you know, in, if we're just talking about weight loss, I don't think the difference is that large, but if we're talking about um, metabolic health and metabolic consequences, I would give the edge typically to low carb diets um, for someone who, you know, has insulin resistance, which most people do. And um, so I, there, I would tend to give the edge more toward low carb diets. Mm -hmm. I may absolutely true. Of course, I'm a big, uh, big fan of low carb. I've been on, I've been eating somewhat low carb for a long, long, long time, 20 years or more. Not, not as strict anymore, but uh, certainly less than most. Um, so I'm, I'm probably a little bit biased uh, 
<laughs> in favor of it on mole for low carb. But it, I, I like what you said that <clears throat> there's a problem if, if your theory is that obesity is caused by carbs, it doesn't really explain that a lot of people can do well on the, on the opposite. Yeah, and that many uh, traditional cultures ate high carb diets and didn't have high obesity rates and don't to this day. Some, you know, even some cultures through the 20th century when in Asia, when white rice became common, some of these cultures like post-war Japan, they were getting like 70% of their calories from white rice and they were extremely lean. So I think, yeah, the model needs to just, it needs to accommodate those kinds of observations. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another thing that, you know, may or may not be a distraction, depending on your point of view, is this animal-based versus plant-based debate. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of healthy vegans uh, and uh, other uh, people who are healthy carnivores uh, losing weight and having good metabolic health. And yeah, what's your take on that? Yeah, pretty similar. Like, People just need to get away from claiming that their diet is the one diet to rule them all and all other diets are garbage. I mean, I think that just isn't, isn't tenable. Yeah. I mean, I think those diet styles both have advantages and limitations and we can understand those and work with those. So if I may uh, summarize from my perspective and we'll see what you think, if you go carnivore, you eat only animal based products, your protein content goes way up you and all the ultra processed highly uh hyper palatable foods disappear well if you go on the, in the plant-based direction now your energy density is way lower and you also exclude all the ultra processed foods uh plus you add a ton of fiber which may give a little bit of a boost uh, would you see it similarly yeah the only thing i would add is that you can eat a really unhealthy plant-based diet too. So that would be like a well-executed plant-based diet that you're referring to, but you know, you can eat a junk food plant-based diet as well. And yeah. you're not going to get Vegan those kinds of benefits. Oreo cookies and, uh, yeah. Chips. Yeah. So I think a lot depends on the execution of it. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so we actually did um, a day of eating with you. Should we look at it a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so you actually scored um, very, very balanced. Uh, so our scoring system we have from zero to hundred, lowest uh, satiety score at hundred uh, at zero, and and highest at uh, at hundred. And basically recommend for people to stay somewhere in the middle, in a balanced place, depending on sort of their goals and and needs. If they want to be super lean and strong, maybe go a little bit towards the higher end. If they are very, very, very extremely active and need to not lose weight then maybe go a little bit lower but aspirationally what we're aiming for is sort of the 50 to be of course this is not uh, as you mentioned we don't have perfect data we don't have perfect insight here but aspirationally we aim for the midpoint 50 to be sort of some kind of normal satiety level from an evolutionary perspective if you live a normal life and you're a normal person and you eat at at that balanced point then you would have a normal normal health and normal body composition sort of so from that perspective you have uh, you shared your your day of eating you have oatmeal for breakfast some greek yogurt and blueberries and then for lunch um, you have uh, for example 
whole grain bread, bread uh, fried eggs, an apple, and some unsalted peanuts. And then for dinner, whether you go uh, with, uh, you had the different options for either a chicken-based uh, meal or a tofu-based meal with also some pretty unrefined uh, foods, baked potato, a carrot salad, some vinaigrette dressing, orange. We like oranges, huh? Big fan. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, what, what do you think about that? You kind of score right at the midpoint. Does that make sense to you or, or uh, does it seem... Odd? Yeah. No, no, it does make sense. And remind me, what, what would be the typical score for someone eating a typical like American or European high, diet? High 20s. Is the high 20s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's even lower than I than I thought. That's that's really low. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I think it makes sense. I mean, I think it's helpful to give people a little bit of context here about me. So I'm not very susceptible to obesity. Um, we, you know, there's some overweight in my family, but no frank obesity. And so, um, and I've never really struggled with my weight. So it's not a, you know, I'm not trying to maximize my weight gain prevention strategies in my life. I am, I'm trying, I do try to eat a slimming diet, but I'm not putting it to the max because I'm not someone who really struggles with my weight, you know? So that's, that's uh, just some context. If I was someone who was, you know, let's say highly genetically susceptible to obesity, then I would be dialing in my diet more. I'd be eating more protein. I probably wouldn't be eating as much as many of the nuts. I might be eating less bread, et cetera. Um, so that's just some context. I'm also very physically mm -hmm. active. So sometimes it can actually be hard for me to get enough calories. Um, so, exactly. but yeah, but I, I do like to eat a diet that is relatively high satiety and relatively slimming because I think that I like to like, <laughs> um, I prefer to have, um, to like have a tendency to slightly undereat rather than overeat. Cause I think overeating is what most people are doing on a daily basis. And I'd rather have my diet be kind of pushing me just a little bit in the other direction. So yeah, that number makes sense to me. The highest um, satiety food uh, on your menu this day was uh, um, some uh, low-fat Greek yogurt. Yeah. At 83 out of 100. Yeah. That, does that make sense, you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I was surprised that the oatmeal was as low as it was. What was, what was oatmeal? Oatmeal got a 52 score. Okay, so maybe, not low, maybe... but... I mean, it's it's uh, in our system here at least very low energy density, very low hedonic score, which makes sense. High fiber, yeah. But the protein is only fifteen percent, yeah, um, which is you know respectable, I guess, but not uh, not very high. That's why I guess it doesn't get a higher score. And yeah. we weigh protein pretty highly, which mm. may or may not be right. What do you think? I I mean, I think it's reasonable. Yeah. I mean, again, like I, I wish I could give you a, uh, more precise evaluation of it, but I think it's at least a, a reasonable, uh, way to go. 
I think um, the lowest scoring thing you had was uh, salad dressing with mm. uh, uh, oil. Um, not a ton, but uh, how does that seem? Because I think a lot of people feel like, oh, olive oil, etc. It's very, very healthy. How can that be low scoring? What's your take on it? No, it makes, makes perfect sense to me. I mean, it's 50, the way I make dressing, it's 50% oil. So it's, it's basically half oil, half vinegar and oil is the most calorie dense substance on the planet. <laughs> so, um, and it has, you know, no fiber, no protein. It's isolated fats are not a high satiety food. And in fact, I'll say, yeah, added fat is actually one of the main things that I work on limiting in my diet. It's not that, you know, people hear that and they think I'm trying to eat a low fat diet and that's actually not true. Um, it's, it's the added fats specifically. And I can tell you that in animal models, which I worked with for a while, adding fat to their food is one of the most effective ways of making them fatter, making their bodies fatter. If you just did one thing, adding fat to their food is one of the most effective things you can do to make them fatter. So I don't, I don't shy away from fat in eggs. I don't shy away from fat in avocados and meat, et cetera. But in terms of the added fats, I do try to keep that limited. Yeah. Uh, and for, for people who try to be more plant-based, uh, you, you had tofu at 79, soy sauce also very high in the 80s. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Calorie. Soy sauce, huh? But it has like yeah, no calories, right? It doesn't doesn't have much of a uh, much of an impact either way, I suppose. But per calorie, it's very high. Right. Interesting. I should maybe program. I should just drink like glass of soy sauce every morning. <laughs> <That's> disgusting. <laughs> high satiety <laughs> breakfast. Yes. Yeah, breakfast <laughs> of champions. Definitely. Um, do you have some more time to discuss um, controversial topics? Um, yeah, I can a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, so the carb insulin model versus energy density always, uh, um, a lot of the discussions you've been very active in those debates. You even argued against Gary Taubes at the Rogan podcast a few years back. Um, if you just summarize in a in a short way, what's your take on this whole debate and battle? Yeah, I mean, I think this is another thing where people like to really like to take sides and personify things. So like, you know, there's, first of all, there are many different models that you could come up with, different hypotheses. So this is not like the only two ways that you could explain obesity and eating behavior, but these are have been like conceptualized as the two models with the people behind them and the people are, you know, battling it out in this epic, you know, uh, tribal warfare. And, uh, <laughs> I just really, uh, don't like that framing and I try to get away with, get away from it, um, as much as I can. And I say that I, you know, I say that and I, I want to acknowledge that, I feel that some of my communication has contributed to that atmosphere. Um, and you, that's you did go into battle at, uh, at, on the biggest podcast in the world. So I you're, did. You're not, and you're not shying away completely. Well, this is why I'm acknowledging it is because I, I do actually feel like some of 
my communications have contributed to that atmosphere. So I, um, I think that's suboptimal. And in retrospect, I think, you know, I, I would want to, I would have wanted to communicate things differently. Um, including on that podcast and the Rogan podcast. Um, but anyway, I think that it was an interesting, uh, interesting, uh, debate. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. To it a couple of times, I think. <laughs> I think, I think the thing for me that I wish I had done differently is like, I, I think that, you know, given the audience, I think people really needed me to kind of, uh, take Gary's ideas more seriously and just in, from a like respect standpoint. And I think that it would have been helpful in retrospect for me to have delivered it differently. So lesson learned there. Yeah, um, sure. I mean, uh, Gary Tubbs is, by the way, from my perspective, he's uh, one of the people who really got me interested in nutrition back in the days. I don't agree with everything uh, today, but certainly had a profound influence on me 15 years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago, for sure. So anyway, uh, the models, I think so you have the um, energy balance model, which is basically in a nutshell saying that the brain is determining body fatness via energy balance. Basically, we have these regulatory circuits in our brains that determine how much we're eating, how much we're expending that are regulating our body fatness. And that that's kind of how body fatness works. And then on the carbohydrate insulin model side, you have this idea that actually energy balance is not really determining body fatness. It's more of a downstream consequence that you have this, this metabolic process, this fattening metabolic process involving insulin that's putting fat on your body and that's kind of causing your brain to make you want to eat more or burn fewer calories in service of that fattening process. So in a nutshell, those are the two models. And, um, I'm, I'm very much on the energy balance model side, um, just to, you know, be clear. And, um, yeah, so, is there anything in particular you wanted to talk about with those? Well, um, what are, do you think, since you're on the energy balance side here, <laughs> now we're in the tribal stuff anyways, uh, what do you think the main mistakes or weaknesses of the carb insulin model is or are? I think that it kind of ignores some very important evidence um, that I feel is probably the most important evidence we have in this debate. Um, and that is the human genetics evidence. I shouldn't say it ignores it, but I would say it doesn't take it seriously enough. Um, so we have these studies that basically tell us what the genetics of common obesity is. So what are the genes that cause some people to be fatter than others? And we have at this point, like 900 locations in the genome that correlate with higher or lower risk of obesity. Each one is very small, uh, has a very small impact. So it's only in aggregate that they 
have a major impact on body fatness. And genetics is really important. It's a major determinant of how fat people are. And, uh, and if you look at what these genes are doing, overwhelmingly, they're related to brain function. So they're heavily enriched. And in fact, when you do these analyses and you do statistical tests on them to see what's statistically significant and what's not, the brain is really the only organ that emerges as being, as being the thing that's influenced by these genes. So, and I'm not saying that means only the brain is involved in real life, but like, that's the only thing that's coming up as a strong signal in these analyses. And so, I mean, and we know that the, the brain is the only known organ in the body that has a regulatory system for body fatness in it. And the brain also is the organ that determines behavior, including eating behavior. The brain generates all behavior. It's the organ that moves the muscles that put the fork to the plate and then to the mouth. And so um, I think, yeah, so that's that's some of the argument. I think the thing I really like about the genetic studies is they're relatively unbiased. Like they're not researchers going and looking for brain genes. They're just looking at all of these genes that happen to come up in these studies and saying, well, do these genes re relate to brain function or liver function or pancreas or muscle or whatever? And the brain is just what pops up. And in uh, some fairness, uh, there, I, I suppose the brain is much more complex and require a lot more genes than any of these other organs, right? I mean, the brain is more complex. Yes. I don't know about the share of genes, but the thing about these analyses is they compare, they're called enrichment analyses and they compare the set of genes that comes up to what you would expect by chance. So it's only if they're coming up more than by chance that you would get a statistically significant result. And so you can do these analyses on um, other traits like height and you get really uh, logical results. It's like connective tissue and bone growth come up when you look at height. When you look at diabetes, you get pancreas and beta cells. When you look at psychiatric conditions, you get brain genes. Um, and when you look at, you know, IQ, you get brain genes. So it's like the results you get are very logical. If you look at autoimmune disease, you get immune system genes. And and when you look at obesity, you get brain genes. And that's just what, well, what pops up. It's a compelling argument. Yeah, I um, think so. Another thing then, because, uh, okay, some mistakes with the carb insulin model, maybe, uh, or, or things they may, uh, they should look closer at. Historically, what on the energy density, uh, sort of uh, energy balance side, um, what do you see as as problems there? From from a sort of at least from a historical perspective, do you feel like people have interpreted this wrong into practical advice, or um, what? And anything there that people need to sort of reconsider or think about, about the energy balance model? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, let me think about this. I mean, any model is a simplification of the truth, right? First of all, I mean, at best, it's a simplification of the truth. Um, and so, of course, that's true of the energy balance model as well. Um, 
And I don't want to say that our current understanding of the energy balance model is perfect or will never be changed. Um, so just to be clear about that, um, but I think there is a lot of confusion in um, how people think about energy balance and how people apply it. So um, for example, people will hear me talking about energy balance and the important role that that has in body fatness, which is very well supported, but then they'll think, oh, you're saying we should just eat less, move more. And those are two different things. I'm talking about the impact, the, the mechanistic impact of energy balance on body fatness. Eat less, move more is diet advice. That's different. That's making a claim that this, that doing, putting this into practice is an effective method in your life for getting sustainable fat loss. And that's a different. Um, I think for most people, it's not. Yeah, I think that for most people, it is not. And, um, but that doesn't mean that energy balance is unimportant. Because, you know, if you look at, let's say people going on low carb diets, they spontaneously eat less, they eat a lot less spontaneously calories, that is, um, estimates you know, people will go on low carb diets and just eat 500 calories fewer per day. And that is obviously an important reason why they're losing body fatness. And so um, they're not trying to restrict calories, right? They're not thinking about calories. They're not doing eat less, move more. What they're doing is they're eating different food and their calorie intake is naturally declining. And so um, I think that's a major point of confusion is people will say, well, eat less, move more is garbage. It's, you know, debunked or whatever, ineffective. And so, you know, energy balance is also irrelevant. Why would we care about energy balance? And I think that's confusing to two different things. Yeah, I agree. Um... Let's just talk briefly about the future of nutrition and, and nutrition research because you've been so you've been so into it for for a long time following this and communicating about it. W where do you think this is is going in the next few years or the next decade? You know, what are some things that are coming up? What do you have your eyes on? What's going to be interesting? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is the the pharmacotherapy, the drugs. That's been something that I've been very interested in um we have as i'm sure i know you're aware i'm sure much of your audience is aware we have these new drugs weight loss drugs that are highly effective and they're getting more and more effective so it's it's an insane the, the pace of things um new drugs are being developed or released at a very rapid pace that are um helping people achieve um, greater weight loss. And I think for me right now, the main limitation of these is access. So they're very expensive. They're often not covered by insurance. They're often, um, 
there are often supply constraints as well. And so right now access is a big problem. And I, I don't know how many of your listeners are uh, Americans versus non-Americans, but these drugs cost about four times more in the U.S. than they do in the rest of the world. And uh, It's going to be very profitable for some people. It is. Basically, the United States, we pay for R&D costs for pharma globally. We, we pay a very large share of global research and development costs for pharma because it's such a lucrative market. So, I mean, clearly these drugs... Uh are extremely effective like you say and and uh, even more effective drugs seems to be coming up um seems that they can not just help people lose weight but also reduce the risk of various diseases and even death right which is ultimately a very good thing um, yeah are there any drawbacks or should we all be on them sort of <laughs> Yeah, sure. I mean, there there are um, certainly unwanted side effects that are common with these drugs. Um, so the most common and significant is that people will get gastrointestinal um, discomfort when they start these drugs. So they'll get nausea, they might get... Uh, diarrhea or constipation or those types of gastrointestinal symptoms because these these drugs are based on gut hormones so they impact your gut physiology they impact how your brain is interpreting gut signals and um and they're they're driving satiety to the max right so it's like if you drive satiety to the absolute max you get to nausea eventually and so um so the, yeah, those kinds of side effects, and they can be pretty uncomfortable at first. Usually they go away over time. So that's usually something that happens during dose escalation. And typically most people will not experience those on an ongoing basis once they're adjusted to the drugs. Um, other than that, I don't think there's a lot of major downsides to these drugs. I mean, they have some really big positive side effects like uh, reduction in cardiovascular events. We have those data high quality now, reductions in all-cause mortality, um, reductions in risk of diabetes. And this is mirroring what we see for bariatric surgery, weight loss surgery, where basically any chronic disease you want to look at any major chronic disease you want to look at, the risk is greatly reduced by bariatric surgery. So will uh, bariatric surgery become a thing of the past almost? Will it? Uh, will people be on these drugs instead of surgery, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that in the short run, no. Um, I mean, first of all, it's it's important to acknowledge that very few people are getting bariatric surgery right now, at least in the United States. It's um, very limited by, I think, both supply and demand. Um, there are not a lot of surgeries happening. There's not a lot of, it's not scalable in the same way as these drugs, at least currently. Um, and a lot of people just don't want to have the surgery. Um 
you know, it's a major abdominal surgery that's rearranging your digestive tract. So a lot of people don't want that. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, that is uh, understandable, I guess. Uh, people uh, are a little bit, a little bit hesitant to yeah. get out their, their internal organs, uh, yeah. parts of them. Uh, another thing on the on these drugs, I mean, I agree they're super effective, a lot of positives. Uh, one thing that gets debated online is the loss of lean body mass. If it's, mm, right. if it's bigger than what you would expect from a similar sort of weight loss uh, um, using uh, lifestyle interventions, uh, is that a concern or or not really? What do you think? Mm, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. That uh, is something that I should have mentioned. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't been um, intimately involved in that discussion or reviewing those data. So I'm, I don't have a really strong position on it right now. I do think it's important to note, as you alluded to, that losing lean mass is expected with weight loss. So, and not necessarily in my view, a bad thing because you gain lean mass in weight gain. So people with obesity have more lean mass than people who do not have obesity. And so if you're just losing that extra lean mass, that to me doesn't seem like necessarily a problem. As much as we would all love to be, you know, muscular and never lose a gram of muscle, like it doesn't necessarily seem like a problem. No, I mean, it's, it's normal. Um, but the question is, I guess, if it's, if it's more with these drugs. Yeah, if it's and, excessive. And it's so much more that it's, uh, it's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a good question. I haven't seen data that are really compelling suggesting um loss of lean mass to a, such a degree that it concerns me um but again i haven't been very intimately engaged in this so i may have missed something sure another thing um just interesting to hear your point of view uh these are satiated drugs as you mentioned um and um Mm, they can be quite powerful, but maybe not get people all the way they want to go. Uh, would it be preferable? I, I suppose so. But what's your take on it? Uh, should these satiety drugs, if you will, be combined with satiety foods? What's your take on that for for the best possible uh, effectiveness? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I would expect those two things to complement one another. Um, I think we don't have any actual data on that yet, so I think we'll have to wait to see. But I would expect that they would complement one another. Cool. Uh, so this has been super interesting, lots of interesting things. I would love to have uh, talk about one more thing, if you have the time. Uh, it's your uh, Red Pen Reviews. Yeah. We want to share a little bit about that. And I mean, you review popular diet books right for scientific accuracy and such so i would love to hear a little bit about that uh, sort of what are the worst books on the market what are the best books uh, from a scientific perspective um yeah yeah absolutely so red pen reviews is a non-profit organization that publishes uh free reviews free expert reviews of popular nutrition books and we do it using a unique structured review method that we developed to give results that are informative um, 
and as unbiased as possible and as consistent as possible across reviews. So we developed this formal semi-quantitative method for scoring books on scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and healthfulness. And then we apply this consistent method to each book. It's quite time consuming. It takes 40 to 100 hours to do these reviews per book. And then impressive, very, very thorough. Uh, read number. Thank you. Very interesting. I recommend it. Thank you. People can Google red pen reviews, but yeah, keep going. Sorry to interrupt. No, that's okay. And then, and then, you know, we, one of the things that I think is uh, most useful about how we do things is we then take that information and we digest it into different um, formats for different levels of engagement. So for people who only want the quickest take, who want to just literally open the page and glance at it, they can see the book's overall score. And there's a score bar, color-coded score bar, that gives the overall score for the book in a percentage terms and is color-coded. And they can right there get a sense of what is the information quality of this book. If they want to spend another 10 seconds, they can look at the score bars for this, the subscores. So scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and healthfulness. If they want to spend 30 seconds, they can read our review summary right below that, where we give highlights of where those scores came from, what the book is about, and where the scores came from. And then you go down and you can see the summaries for each section, the scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and healthfulness. And then if you want to go to the absolute bottom of what we did, you click to expand each scoring section, and then you can see the exactly why we gave each, um, each score that we did complete with click-through references, page numbers, and quotations from the book. So whatever level you want to engage to, whether you're a healthcare professional, a researcher, a member of the public who doesn't care that much and just wants the five-second answer, whatever level you want to engage to, you can engage to on our review pages. Very cool. I, I want to hear some specifics here as well, but uh, starting from a high level sort of uh, thematically, what, what kind of books tends to do better or worse in your reviews? Do you have any, is there any pattern that emerges? Yeah, we have a sample size of like 21 at this point. So, um, you know, I think we'll have better answers with more data. Um, What's your intuitive sound so far? The biggest, I would say, red flag in terms of the type of book that is going to score poorly is the type of book that is making some kind of extraordinary, unusual claim and claiming that everybody else has, is wrong. Like everything you think is wrong, here's what's really going on. <laughs> so, uh, I have heard that a few times. What, uh, what's, the, what's the worst one or a few books in your scoring so far? Here, let me pull it up to make sure I'm giving you the, the right answer here. And uh, yeah, so I'm pulling up my review page and I am asking it to you, sort you select the ones by overall that, uh, score. A lot, of people, uh, a lot of people read and a lot of people want to. So these are among the most popular books on the market, yeah. I think. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. So we're, we're really going for impact. We want to meet people where they are to give them 
the best, the most impactful information we can give them to help them improve their understanding of health and nutrition, avoid misinformation and get more accurate information. So the lowest scoring book that we've reviewed so far is the carnivore code that got an overall score of 38% out of a hundred. So who's the author of that is that Paul Saladino. Oh yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. What are some, what are the most outrageous and wrong things that are claimed? (laughs) Uh, let's see here. I'm opening up the review to refresh my memory. I mean, I've seen, yeah. Okay. I'm not, I'm not entirely surprised. I have to say. Yeah. Um, some wild wild claims. Okay. All right. So here's one. One of the claims that the book spends a lot of time making and is not a compelling argument is that high LDL cholesterol on a carnivore diet is neutral or even preferable. Um, so people go on these carnivore diets, some of them experience increased LDL cholesterol, some of them to a really extreme degree, like Saladino himself has extremely high LDL cholesterol. And the book contains all these arguments of why that's okay, or why you even might want very high LDL cholesterol. And uh, yeah, we reviewed them in depth, and they just didn't hold up. And, you know, the truth is, like, we don't have randomized controlled trials and people on carnivore diet. So I can't really say for sure either way. But based on the evidence that um, we have, I would be very skeptical of these claims and would not gamble my life on them. Fair enough. Um, some other books at the very, very bottom. Anything? Uh, is it all? Yeah. So in one direction, we, or do we have low scoring books in all? Eat right for your type. That's the blood type diet. That's the next lowest. That um, got an overall score of 39%. So, and usually you these books, uh, you don't believe in this uh, blood type being determinant of what you should eat. You're not to be no, there. I mean, there, I mean, there's basically zero evidence to support it. That's, that's the problem is, <laughs> um, like, can I tell you for sure that like, there's no impact of blood type on what we should eat. I can't say that we haven't done the randomized trials. Right. But like, it's basically made up. Just, like there's no evidence to support it. You could eat for your astrological. Yeah. Yeah. Something. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's kind of implausible. It's, it's hard to swallow the, the, the basis for it and there's no evidence for it. So, and I mean, it got a reference accuracy score of 25%, which is what we give to books that don't even cite references at all. So, yeah, it didn't. That doesn't have references. Didn't do all that well. Twenty five percent for no. um, Okay. Uh, And you might ask why didn't? You might ask why didn't we give it a zero? And the reason is we reserve zero for if there is evidence and it opposes the arguments. So if there's no evidence, if there's nothing, you actually do better than if there is evidence and it's contrary to what you're claiming. So. Um, So third and final uh, book then on the bad side of things, what uh, was the The next book at the bottom? Yeah, the next one is the salt fix. So, Uh yeah. Don't eat tons of salt. 
Yeah. So that book is saying basically, don't worry about salt. There's eat more salt. Well, it's, I think it's saying eat salt to taste. You don't necessarily need to eat. Sounds nice. It does sound nice. I know. (laughs) Um, and why, why why is it not? Why is, why are the claims not scoring well? I think I I eat uh, salt to taste. Should I stop doing that? Yeah. So basically the, the book is making very confident claims based on weak studies and ignoring stronger evidence and arguments that aren't consistent with its message. So, um, the evidence overall, it's not ironclad, but it does suggest that higher salt intake contributes to higher blood pressure and to cardiovascular events. Um, again, it's a lot of the evidence is observational, so it's not like I'm going to, you know, stand here and say this is uh, for sure what's going on, but um, that is the direction that the evidence points in, and it's consistent with the randomized controlled trials showing that mm. more salt increases blood pressure, less salt reduces blood pressure. Sure. Um, sure, that's probably true to yeah. some extent. Although maybe sort of metabolic health and body fatness, etc., has a bigger long-term effect on it than yeah, I'm more salt you eat. Probably, I I've kind of come around to salt probably being pretty important for blood pressure and cardiovascular risk specifically. Um, I obviously also think body fatness is very important. Um, but having done a deep dive into that scientific literature, again, it's not ironclad, but um, I think overall it makes a compelling enough case that I am um, that I have personally restricted my salt intake. I haven't gone that far yet. Uh, maybe I should. We'll see. Um, well, if you uh, if your blood pressure is good, then maybe yeah, it's, it's not such a big deal. But it's almost uh, on the low end, I would say. Okay, yeah. Then I, I would say the case is less compelling for someone like you. Um, but if you're if you have high blood pressure or your blood pressure has been rising slowly over time, it might uh, make sense to mm. cut back on salt. All right. So to wrap up the reviews section, uh, you recommend a good book, except your own. You know, uh, Hungry Brain, great <laughs> book if you're interested in obesity. But Thank apart you. from that, what's your favorite nutrition book? Yeah, my book has not gone through this review process due to obvious conflicts of interest. Um, it's interesting, though. It'd be you know, embarrassing if you scored at the bottom. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, um, I don't think so. I'm going to answer your question, but I do want to take a little aside that you know I wrote my book before Red Pen Reviews was a twinkle in my eye, and. Um, I think that I would have written a better book if this resource had been available because I mean, they're like knowing that there is accountability and that somebody could sift through your book in detail and review it. That's powerful. Right. I mean, I think, and, and also like going through the process of designing a scoring method really helps me understand like what makes a book evidence-based, what makes it not evidence-based. And so I, you know, I always welcome critiques for my book. I have a mistakes page for it on my website. Um, and I would love to learn more about the mistakes that I made in my book, which I know there are mistakes. Um, and so I don't think my book would score perfectly. I hope it would score. 
I hope it would score well. Um, obviously, I'm um, biased, and we unfortunately can't do that review because of the massive conflict of interest. But I, I have thought about it many times and, and been curious about it. Um, but anyway, to answer your question, some books that scored really well, uh, Eat, Drink, and, and Be that, Healthy. Uh, you would personally recommend to make it even more interesting. Books that I would personally recommend. Yeah, so you think uh, think are worth worthwhile reads, not just scientifically accurate because okay, that's all well and good, but are they yeah. helpful and uh, interesting? Yeah. So our top scoring book is "Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy" by Walter Willett, and um, it scored really well in our method. Like citations were accurate, scientific claims were not overstated. Um, I didn't personally conduct that review, um, so it's harder for me to recommend that book because I'm not as familiar with it. Um, but I did do the review of the second highest scoring book, which is The Good Gut by um, Justin and Erica Sonnenberg. It's all about microbiota, gut microbiome and skin microbiome and how it impacts our metabolic health and stuff. And uh, that book I would recommend. I think it's a good book. And then below that is Proof is in the Plants. Um, I didn't review that one either. That's kind of like a plant-based diet book, but it did well. And yeah, so I'm going to go with the good gut to answer your question. Go with the gut. Great. Um... Yeah, this has been a, a long and interesting chat. So many important things to reflect on. Um, if people want to know more about you, of course, they can go to redpenreviews.com. Is that the URL? Dot .org, yeah. Dot .org. You have the Hungry Brain book. Where else can people find you? What are you up to? Anything else you want to share? Yeah, Twitter is the main place where I'm active on social media, although I haven't been posting as much there lately. But my handle is, I guess it's called X now. My handle is S-G-U-Y-E-N-E-T. G -U -Y -E -N -E -T. And that's the main, yeah, that's the main place. That's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. And uh, yeah, maybe we can do this again in a year or something. Yeah, sounds works. good. Thanks, Andreas. <laughs>